Now this morning we are in Matthew chapter 6, we're at the beginning of the chapter there, and this sermon that our Savior Jesus brings to us, we're in the middle of our time of study in that sermon. And uh, as we look at this middle passage, I want to remind us of the flow of the message. We began this sermon series in the Sermon on the Mount by looking at the way that the outline is put together. Jesus is genius in the way that he organizes this sermon. We saw that at the beginning of chapter 5, at the beginning of the sermon, in the first 16 verses, we saw the character of the Christian. And then Jesus moves on in the second half of that chapter 5 to see the Christian in the face of the law of God. Now we turn in Matthew chapter 6 and what we're looking at this morning with the fact that the Christian lives in the presence of the holy God. What is it like to live in the presence of the holy God? And then moving on into chapter 7, we see that the Christian lives in light of the fear of God. If the Lord God sees everything, there is a right response that we are to have in light of the fact that the Lord sees everything, that we live our lives in fear of him. We'll look at that more closely and come to a better understanding of it when we come to that in a few weeks together. This morning, we're beginning that chapter 6, where we see that the Father who sees, he sees us. And he doesn't just see our behavior, as we'll see, the hypocrites, that's their concern. But rather, the the Father sees into our hearts. And so the Christian lives the whole of our life in the presence of the Holy God. In verse 4 of our passage this morning, we see the Father who sees. In verse 6, we see the Father who sees in secret. In verse 18, your Father who sees in secret again. By the time we get to verse 32 in our coming week's messages, we'll see your Father in heaven knows what you need. So he doesn't even know, not only know what we do or what we say, he also knows what's in our heart, but he knows even more than that. He knows what our heart doesn't even know. He knows what we actually need. He is the father who sees. Another way to see chapter six in context of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is preaching is to see that in the previous section in chapter five, Jesus is dealing with the people in their external righteousness, supposed external righteousness. We discover that it's actually self-righteousness in regards to other people. And so we have the people who are puffed up that say, I am righteous toward my neighbor. I haven't killed anyone. I haven't abused or mistreated anyone. In this section, we have a people who are puffed up in hypocrisy and pride. And they say, not only am I righteous toward my neighbor, but I'm righteous toward my God. I'm righteous in my personal devotion. But again, Jesus will de- deconstruct this self-righteousness and hypocrisy by peering into the heart. Here, he will examine the heart's motivations that reveal the true nature of self-righteousness. And Jesus will ask this question, and I want you to make note of it, and remember it as we work our way through this passage this morning. Jesus asks, is our Father in heaven the singular object of our devotion? Is our Father in heaven the singular object of our devotion? As many have asked in light of what Jesus teaches here, do we live our lives before an audience of one? Let's read our passage this morning. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. We're going to skip over this morning the 
Lord's Prayer. It begins in verse 7. We're going to come back to that next week and read then verses 16 through 18. So this morning, chapter 6, verses 1 through 6 and 16 through 18. Please follow along with me this morning. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when... You give to the needy. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray... Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Skipping down to verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast... Anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may be seen by others so that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret and your father who is in secret will reward you. Heavenly Father, we join together corporately to pray to you because you've given us your word and we offer a a corporate devotion to you. We ask that your word would work in us, that you would humble us before your word, that you would teach us what is in this sermon of our Savior and King, what our hearts need to hear, that by your word, our wayward and mixed motivation hearts would be transformed and and given a singular devotion. We thank you for your gospel that we are rescued not only from our sin, but also from our self-righteousness. We thank you for your salvation. We pray, Lord, that you would work in your church a transformation. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for these things, and we pray to you in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our King, and the one who brings us reconciled to our Father. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen. Now, in this passage, verse 1 serves as a sort of introduction. If you look at verse 1 with me, it says very simply, Beware of practicing your righteous before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Really, Jesus could have stopped there. That's the teaching. It has everything in that one verse that we really need to hear to be instructed about how we are to walk in our devotion to the Lord. What it is to be righteous, to be in right relationship with our God is right there in that verse. What follows are three examples of the way that plays out in three specific ways. We'll come back to this in just a 
few moments, but the words, in order to be seen by them, is very important. The issue of this passage is not who sees what. Please make note of that. We can make a legalism of this passage that's to rescue from self-righteous legalism by making this passage all about how you're supposed to do what and who you're allowed to see you doing whatever it is that you do so that we eliminate the corporate prayer. I mean, we're not supposed to pray where others can see, so I shouldn't have done what I just now did, right? We can make a legalism of this passage if we think that it's all about who it is that we're allowed to see us doing whatever particular religious devotion we are about. But that's not what this passage is about. This passage is about going at the issue of the matter of the heart's motivation. Look at verse 1 again with me. Like I said, it has in it everything that we really need to hear regarding the teaching that Jesus is about to launch into. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order that to be seen by them. The issue is a matter of your heart. When other people see you walking in a particular way, what is your heart's motivation? Is it in order to be seen by them? Is the goal of your devotion to be seen and approved by others? The issue is not who sees what, but rather the issue of the heart's motivation to be seen. Now, it's interesting that right here in this same sermon, we have something to compare this to that seems like it says quite the opposite. Look back at chapter 5 with me. In chapter 5, in the same sermon of Jesus, in verse 16, it says this, In the same way, let your light shine before others. You see that? Let your light shine before... In the other passage is saying, be careful not to be seen, right? No, it's not, it's not really what it's saying. It's saying, be careful of your heart's motivation to be seen. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When we put that teaching up next to our teaching this morning, there really is no contradiction The point is that our devotion to the Lord will shine such that others will see the light of the glory of God who has given us this way to walk. But we're not to do those works with a heart motivated by the praise of others. The issue is, is simple. Glorify God or glorify self. What is the object of our devotion? Self-righteous prideful self-glory or the glory of our God to whom we are devoted. The section focuses on our devotion to God in chapter 6. The activities listed here, generosity, specifically almsgiving, prayer and fasting are distinctly activities of personal devotion. This sets these activities apart from the obedience Jesus teaches in chapter 5 where he focuses on our interaction with others. This passage in chapter 6 is largely on our interaction personally with our God. 
Thus the point is not that our light would shine before others, but that our hearts would have a single-minded devotion. Now, the way that we're going to see this this morning is by looking at the structure of the teaching. Jesus, in verse 1, has given us the teaching. He then goes on to give three examples, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. And each one of their, those, he goes through a very rigid structure to the teaching. And I, I believe that actually the, the teaching that Jesus has for us is found in the structure itself. You can see it very quickly if you pay attention closely. You'll see that the structure of the teaching in each one of the three examples is, first of all, your righteousness versus the hypocrites. That there is a way of righteousness that is yours to walk in versus the way of the hypocrites. Secondly, the structure of the teaching moves on to the heart's motivation in the hypocrites to be seen by others. That's the motivation behind what they do. And so that's why they do their righteousness the way that they do it. And it's revealed to be self-righteous hypocrisy. It's because they want to be seen and approved by others. Third, in each case, he says, but when? The expectation is that you would go about these things of personal generosity and almsgiving, prayer and fasting. But when you do, there is a way that you can do this in order to avoid the way of the hypocrite. Fourth, We're told that we're given a comparison between the hypocrite who has received their reward in full in their prideful self-righteousness versus the father who will reward you. Those four elements of the structure of the teaching really teach us something. The fourfold structure of the teaching tells us that there's something that Jesus has to teach us about the heart's motivation. It's my understanding that Jesus offers generosity, prayer, and fasting as three examples to give us an overall pattern to instruct our hearts in all areas of personal devotion to God. So I would ask you this. Perhaps you don't have a problem with the way that you go about a hypocritical almsgiving or generosity. Maybe you don't have a problem with the way that you go about your prayer or your fasting if you go about it at all. But perhaps there is another area of personal devotion that you can, you can apply the same structure of teaching to. Take verse 1 and apply it to all areas of our personal devotion to God. That is this. There is both a righteous and a hypocritical way to walk in all areas of our devotion to our God. There is a danger in the motivation of the heart to be seen by others. I can tell you right now, one of the ways that I know that this passage is not only about generosity or prayer or fasting is how much I struggled about what this passage has to say about preaching. I was sharing with our our, our gathering this morning before we, uh, we serve out uh, the congregation. We gather with the, the team that's leading in worship and the team that's leading in sound and praying together and a prayer of confession. And I just said, look, one of the hardest things about preaching is, is there's this element of personal devotion that's put on display. The way that we go about preaching at Cross Point Coast, there's a sense that by my or Joel or Mark or Matt's coming and standing here with a word in front of us, there's sort of this public proclamation that I have spent time with God and that I've been devoted to him in prayer. 
And by preaching, I'm, I'm putting that on display. And I ask God, I'm going to do that because that's what your word has instructed me to do. And that's what the church has commissioned the elders to be about. But God, what's going on with my heart's motivation this morning? There is a danger in the motivation of the heart to be seen by others. Thirdly, when we practice our devotion, there are practical ways to train our hearts. And Jesus goes about instruction regarding those practical ways when he says, but when you pray, but when you give, but when you fast, but when you preach. I ask myself and I ask the Lord, how do we go about these things to train our hearts? Fourth, the final and most effective training is not just a practice of making sure that we, we practice our devotion, we do it in private, or else I wouldn't be preaching this morning. The final and most effective training is to look to our Father in heaven as our final reward of our devotion. The final reward of our devotion is our Father in heaven, and that will truly train our hearts. We should not be surprised that if our devotion is to God, that our reward would be God. If he is the one to whom we are devoted, if he is the one that we desire and that we seek, then we should be satisfied when we find him and when he rewards us with himself. This morning, let's look at this structure by looking at the passage. We're, we're not going to walk our way through each one of the three examples, but consider them together by looking at the structure, by looking, first of all, at your righteousness versus the hypocrites. We see it in verse 1 already. Be prepared of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. In verse 2, he launches into the first example. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound a trumpet before you, as do the hypocrites in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. You see the heart motivation issue. If you just ended that they... They give in a public way, but they don't do so to be seen by others. There wouldn't necessarily be a problem. The problem is that they do so to be seen by others. Generosity, prayer, fasting, these are righteous acts. Jesus has no problem with any of the three of them. Jesus is making this clear by calling out as hypocrites those who practice these things, but they practice these things with hearts motivated by the praise of men so that God is not actually, in the end, the object of their devotion. On the other hand, what makes these acts righteous is that they are done in faith. I want to demonstrate this for you because it's important that we see Faith in this passage, though the word faith isn't used. It's clear that faith-filled devotion is Jesus' aim because these acts are done with a solitary trust in and devotion to the Lord alone. And that's the nature of faith. Faith trusts the Lord and trusts the Lord's reward for his people. And so... This is what separates the righteous from the hypocrites, is a heart that is motivated by faith. Heart's devotion is a matter of faith. Now, what is put on display here in generosity, prayer, and 
fasting is that true righteousness on the Sermon on the Mount is righteousness of faith. It's to trust the king. We've talked a lot about the king and his kingdom. It's to trust that his way and to pursue his glory. What makes this section so powerful is that it's made so clear that the king is our father. You notice the appearance of the father here in chapter 6, right? Up to this point, we've been emphasizing the nature of the king and his kingdom and his right to rule his kingdom and that the fact that the way that he rules his kingdom is good. And then we're told that we enter into his kingdom not only as mere subjects, but as children of the king himself. And we say, wow, not only his way is good, he is good. And the way that he's brought us into his kingdom and the place that he's given us in his kingdom is truly good. And that motivates our hearts to seek him. I want to encourage us to go over to, to really, in many ways, is a parallel passage for us. In John, 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, beginning at verse 28 through chapter 3, verse 3. John has much to say about devotion to the Father, obedience to him, and what it is to have walk in a life of integrity, single-minded, faith-filled devotion to our God. In 1 John chapter 28, it says this. Or in verse, 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, it says this. Now children, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Tell me that the hypocrite won't shrink from him when he comes, because they never wanted him. The hypocrite doesn't want God. The hypocrite is not devoted to God. The hypocrite wants self and approval of self. And so when he appears, they are ashamed. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called children of God. And so we are. I love that. He didn't need to say that. But he does. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. It's right that we would call him our Father. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know when he appears, we shall be like him, children of the Father. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him, who is devoted to him, who who has as their devotion that they might see him as he sees us, Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You see, a single-minded devotion to the Father is the issue that is at hand, that Jesus is bringing to us in both Matthew chapter 5 and through his Spirit in 1 John chapter 2. If we are children of the Father, we will be shaped by the way of the Father, and we will see him as our righteousnesses, reward. 
This is the first element of the structure. The second element of the structure is that this heart's motivation of the hypocrite to be seen by others. It shows up in all three examples as well as in verse one's teaching. We'll look at the example in chapter, in verse two of chapter six. Thus, when we give to the needy, sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by Others. This is the issue, the heart's motivation to be praised by others. Matthew chapter 23 is also a parallel passage to this. When Jesus goes at the Pharisees and he pronounces seven woes upon them. To be clear, a woe is a curse. Jesus curses the hypocrites and he does so because of this in Matthew chapter 23 verse 5. That they do all their deeds to be seen by others. What is their hope? Their hope is to put themselves on display for praise and glory. What is their reward? The emptiness of their own vain glory. They have no glory in themselves, but that is their only reward. What makes a hypocrite? We often think of hypocrisy as a person who like says one thing and does another. But that's not necessarily the problem with the hypocrites in this passage. They seem to be actually quite consistent in what they do. The problem with the hypocrite isn't a matter of their consistency of supposed righteousness. What defines a hypocrite is the object and source of their devotion. It's that their behaviors are behaviors of devotion to God in their almsgiving, in their prayer, and in their fasting. But the reality of their heart is that they are devoted to themselves. Notice that the hypocrite that Jesus describes find the source of their devotion, their motivation to be what others think of them, not what they think of their Father in heaven. What does it mean that they're devoted to others? They're not actually devoted to others at all. They're devoted to themselves and their own glory. They're not devoted to God. They're not devoted to others. They're devoted to their own pride. Now, there is a corrective that is already in the sermon for us. Remember Jesus' teaching in chapter 5. It's, it's a poignant teaching. It's a, it's a teaching that goes to our heart. We've already seen it over the course of numerous sermons on this glorious Sermon on the Mount. Jesus in chapter 5 lifts the veil on our hearts and in spite of any supposed external righteousness and obedience, he reveals our anger and our lusts and our oaths and our retribution. And he leaves us to ask the question, why in the world are we showing off our devotion to God before mankind when the Father has already shown that he sees our hearts? He's already shown that we have a wickedness in our hearts, in our relationship with others. Why in the world would we believe that we should put on display our devotion to God? John makes the exact same argument in 1 John. Go and and read 1 John this week as a a practical explanation of what Jesus is talking about in chapter 6 of Matthew. How can we know that God drudges through the reality of our hearts as it regards anger and lust and yet strut around our self-righteousness in our generosity and pompous prayer? It doesn't make any sense. He's already offered the corrective. 
How can we pretend to be righteous toward God when our hearts have such unrighteousness toward our fellow man? It just reveals that our hearts have mixed motivations at best. And now we would seek the praise of those whom we have murdered and abused in our own hearts? I hate you. I've abused you. I've used you for my own internal self-satisfaction. Now praise me for my devotion to God. It's foolishness. This is how wicked our hearts are. (laughs) It's, It's telling. It's fearful when we see what we're really like. Brothers and sisters, our hearts are wicked. How generous our Savior is to uncover our hypocrisy. It's not cruelty, it's kindness to show us who we are, who we really are in our heart of hearts and to bring us the grace gift of showing us the glory of his way. And as we see the gospel unpacked throughout the course of the whole of Matthew, see that these are the hearts that he has come to redeem. We are a people in need of his salvation. Praise God, the people not devoted to him have been given new hearts, have been redeemed. We must be careful of what we do to be seen by others when the reality is that our hearts are desirous to seen by, that our hearts have already been seen by God. Now, here's what Jesus does in the third part of the structure. In each example that he gives, he tells us, but when. You see it in verse 3, you see it in verse 6, and you see it in verse 17. He doesn't say your generosity is wickedly mixed motivation. Your prayer, it's all messed up. Your fasting has mixed motivation there as well. So don't even do it. No, he offers a but when. The expectation is that we would be a people of generosity. The expectation is that we would be a people of prayer and that we would be a people of fasting. That right there is a challenge to us, is it not? And then he says, but when you go about these things that are the right way of his kingdom, when you go about these things that are often neglected by the church, when you go about them, there is some practical ways that we can train our hearts. The assumption is that you do give that you do pray, that you do fast. The corrective is not to give up personal devotion because our hearts have mixed motivations. If so, we would never return to those things. Jesus offers here a series of practical correctives for a heart that is weak in faith. So we confess we're weak in faith. We confess that we are poor in spirit that we have mixed motivations, and then we go about these practical correctives in verse 33. But when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing in generosity. Verse 6, when you pray, go into your room, close the door. There's a practical corrective. Verse 17, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Clean yourself up a little. Let us observe that none of these three practical steps actually changes the condition of our hearts. I think that's very important for us. That's why Jesus' teaching isn't done there. He doesn't say, don't, don't be like the hypocrites, to be praised by others, but instead make sure that your righteousness is done in secret at the end. 
Because just because we're in secret doesn't mean our hearts are rightly motivated. Private generosity, closeted prayer, concealed fasting merely leaves us alone with wicked hearts. Just because I'm closed up in my bedroom trying to pray to God doesn't mean my, my heart is right. A heart closeted in prayer is still a heart with mixed motivations. But it's also a heart that's cut off from the praise of men that feeds insatiable hypocrisy. Essentially, Jesus is saying, cut off the supply that feeds self-righteousness. You're already self-righteous. That's already a problem. Just cut off the supply to feeding that self-righteousness. Starve our hearts of man-centered praise that competes for our devotion. These correctives are similar to Jesus' instruction in the previous passages of cutting off your hand or gouging out your eye that causes you to sin. Just because your hand is cut off doesn't mean that your heart is fixed, right? But it just means that you, you can't go off in the behaviors. You're starving yourself of the opportunities to walk in sin, but the heart is not yet fixed. Our hearts aren't corrected, but they are being starved of access to sin that captured our hearts. And it's in this private place that the real corrective takes place. You see, it's in the private place that we're left alone with the Father. You can see where the corrective is actually going to take place. We're starved of the praise of men, and we're left alone with our God. And at this point, in the last part of Jesus' structure, he offers the true corrective for the waywardness of our hearts, for our faithless hypocrisy. The fourth part of the structure is that the hypocrite has received their reward in full, but the Father will reward you. They've received the reward That phrase is similar to the ironic statement about those who are least in the kingdom in chapter 5. The point is this. There's no kingdom for the people in chapter 5, and there is no true reward for the hypocrite. Jesus' statement that they have received their reward is actually a technical phrase. It means to receive a sum in full and to be given a receipt. There. Transaction completed. Kent Hughes puts it this way. The truth is, they're not giving, they're buying. And they got what they paid for. It's possible to be the most generous Christian around, both in the amount and proportion you give, and yet have no reward except that which you immediately receive. That you would purchase the praise of men and walk away with nothing but the vanity of your self-righteousness. Vanity. Empty. There is no glory in our hearts. There's, there's no, nothing precious to be found in our self-righteousness. There's only glory in God. And so to receive the glory of the praise of men of our own hearts is to receive nothing from that investment, and the receipt is given. And yet Jesus teaches that reward is to remain the object of our satisfaction. The question is this, where do we seek our reward? Where do we make our investment? In the praise of men 
or in the eyes of our Father. Now, some object to this way of thinking. They really are objecting to Jesus' own teaching and the consistent teaching of the Scriptures. They argue for a sort of detached altruism. I'm just doing what I'm doing because it's good to do. But this is not the clear and consistent teaching of Scripture. I'm going to offer a quotation by C.S. Lewis, and I think it says it beautifully. It's a little bit complicated, so I'll warn you, you might have to lean forward and pay attention to what C.S. Lewis says here. But it's profound and I think very helpful if you would capture it. C.S. Lewis says this, We must not be troubled by unbelievers when they say that this promise of reward makes the Christian life a mercenary affair. That to seek reward is to turn us into mercenaries. There are different kinds of reward. He offers that there are these two different kinds, and they're really what Jesus has held out here. There is the reward which has no natural connection with the things you do to earn it and is quite foreign to the desires that ought to accompany those things. It's like being dared when you're together with a group of friends. Hey, why didn't you tell that girl over there that you think she's cute, that you want her number, and you want to go out this weekend? You say, all right, I'll take that dare. Well, what is the reward when you go and do that? The reward is quite detached from the reality of what it might be like to enter into a new relationship. The reward is the praise of a couple buddies that think that you're cool and daring, right? That's not natural, that's broken. And we can see what's wrong with entering into a relationship in that sort of way. The reward is unnaturally detached from the relationship. That's what C.S. Lewis is bringing out here. Money is not the natural reward of love. That is why we call a man a mercenary if he marries a woman for the sake of her money. Money is not the natural reward. There's something broken and detached about that sort of transaction. But marriage, marriage is the proper reward for a real lover. And he's not a mercenary for desiring it. The proper rewards are not simply tacked on or foreign to the activity for which they are given, but are the activity itself in consummation. Friends, that is beautiful. In other words, the activity of devotion to God finds its reward in what? What is the most natural and beautiful consequence and reward of devotion, single-minded devotion to God? God! If you want God, if you pursue God, if you pray to God, if you fast of worldly things to obtain heavenly things, what is the reward of the Father? Heavenly things. Fatherly things. Relationship to God things. This is the point. We do not go about our acts of personal devotion to obtain a thing other than that which we are devoted to. 
We don't go about acts of devotion to God to obtain the praise of men. To do so is to earn a reward that is no natural connection with the work itself. Rather, our act of devotion to God seeks God himself as our reward. It's not an altruistic detachment. It is a wholehearted, guttural devotion that wants to get something. We're devoted to God because we're hungry. We want to be satisfied. And the only thing that would satisfy our devotion to God is that we get God. And the promise of Jesus is the Father in heaven who sees what is done in secret will reward you with God. The one who seeks the reward of the Father loves the Lord, loves his way. We shouldn't be surprised then to discover that the Lord himself loves his own way and takes joy in the disciples' exhibition of his way of righteousness and faith-filled obedience. So the Father rewards with joy the one who is walking in his way. Hebrews chapter 12 has something instructive for us. I think it's interesting that Matt Hardy pointed us to this passage in our prayer of confession this morning. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, what was so great about them? They sought the Lord. They trusted the Lord. They were people of faith. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. You see, Jesus had his eye on reward when he went about a devotion to his God in the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We have this perfect example of faith-filled righteousness in our Savior himself. It was the joy of the Father's approval that motivated the greatest personal devotion What did Jesus receive? He received the very throne of heaven where the Father dwells. The one who seeks the way of the Father receives fellowship with the Father in his kingdom. More than that, the Father is treating us like his children in all of this talk of reward. Consider Hebrews 12 verse 7, just continuing on in that Hebrews 12 passage. It says this, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? And here it's really beautiful to discover that discipline has both a positive and a negative aspect. In Matthew 6, we speak of the reward of the father that's shaping our hearts. In Matthew 12, we speak of the discipline of our father. In both cases, the result is the same. The father disciplines and rewards the child to teach them the joy of walking in what is right and good. The goal of the Father is that we would not become weary of doing good, but persevere in our pursuit of Him, His kingdom, and His kingdom's way. And in perseverance, we will discover the joy of His goodness, the joy of fellowship with the way of our King and our Father. 
Now, I wish I had time this morning to walk back through generosity and prayer and fasting. I would commission you to do so with your community groups this week, to look more intently at the way that Jesus applies this basic teaching in verse 1 to these three examples. Maybe even consider other aspects of personal devotion that you can apply this structure to. Where we where where can we find an example though? How can we how can we look for one who is who has done this rightly? How can we find one who has been personally devoted to God that can never be called a hypocrite? Is there anyone who has ever sought the Father with a wholehearted, single-minded devotion? We needn't look no further than the preacher of the Sermon on the Mount himself, Jesus. The one who fixed his eyes upon the reward of the Father at every single turn. He is the man of faith-filled obedience and personal devotion to God. His generosity was always with the goal that it would bring praise to the Father. He consistently withdrew from public attention to seek the presence of the Father. In the midst of his fasting, he's the one who declared, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And you know what he did in that moment? He washed his face. He said, I'm hungry, but I'm satisfied. And he smiled at the devil because he was filled with the presence of the word of the Father. We see in Jesus that the Father is the Son's Reward. How much more is he the reward of all of his children? Our Father in heaven is the object of our devotion. So I would encourage you to do this. As you consider the deeds of your devotion, and there are deeds, there are activities, there are behaviors that we go about that are the ways of our personal devotion to our God, even our corporate devotion to God. But I would ask you to don't, don't just do the deed of devotion. Ask, with this activity, do I love God? What do I want as a result of this behavior? Do I want fellowship with my Father? And know this, that that fellowship can only be found through the Son. The only one who is perfectly righteous and who has given himself in the place of sinners with mixed motivations and who is by his spirit to this day, by means of the foundation of his gospel and the ongoing work of the gift of the spirit, transforming the hearts of those who would follow after him in faith, that in that quiet place, alone with our father, cut off from the praise of men, he would work in us a desire for his kingdom and his righteousness. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can begin our prayer with a cry to our Father, that by means of our older brother, Jesus, we have been reconciled to the Father, God our Father, Christ our brother. Thank you for your forgiving and sanctifying grace. I pray that you will take a people of mixed motivations, hypocrites at best, that you would pull us aside to be with you. And in that place, show us the glory of the Father. 
We know that that very request was made by Jesus' disciples. And he himself teaches us that if we've seen the Son, we've seen the Father. Let us be satisfied with you. Coach our hearts, tutor our hearts, discipline our hearts to be devoted and satisfied in the glory of the Father alone. Thank you. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name and by means of his grace. Amen.